Thank you for downloading this episode of New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book that takes a deeper look at some area of world sport, and we talk with the author. This week's guest is Lucia Trimber, Assistant Professor of Sociology at John Jay College and a faculty member at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We are discussing Lucia's 2013 book, Come Out Swinging, The Changing World of Boxing in Gleason's Gym, published by Princeton University Press. Lucia's project is an outstanding work of ethnographic research. The book is based on a year spent at Gleason's Gym, the oldest boxing gym in operation in New York City. Over the decades, fighters such as Jake LaMotta, Roberto Duran, Mike Tyson, and young Cassius Clay trained at Gleason's. And as we hear in the interview, Hilary Swank trained at the gym in preparation for her Oscar-winning performance in Million Dollar Baby. But Lucia's book is not about the storied history of this iconic gym. Instead, she looks at the people who work and train at the gym today and what compels them to take up the sweet science. I was surprised several times by the picture that Lucia paints of this contemporary boxing gym. This is a rich and insightful book, and I think you'll enjoy my interview with Lucia. This week's guest on New Books and Sports is Lucia Trimber. Lucia, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So we typically start out by having a, a bit of background about our guest. And uh, so I'll ask you, Lucio, about your, uh, where you got your interest in sociology and specifically your, uh, your research interest. What brought you to Gleason's Gym to do research? Sure. So um, I, I do admit that I've always been a, a fan of the sport of boxing. Um, however, I've felt uh, in, in watching boxing and in following uh, particular boxers, uh, I've always felt complicated about the racial um, and class history of the sport. Um, so when I went to uh, grad school, I thought that there is sort of no better a topic to study than one that you feel conflicted about, um, one that you, at on the one hand, admire and find yourself um, very, very interested in, and then on the other hand, that you have questions about or that there are aspects that make you feel slightly uncomfortable. Um, at that time, uh, women were just starting to compete uh, in the sport. So uh, women had uh, joined gyms in New York City around 1983 or so. I think uh, Gleason's Gym was the first to, to allow women to become members uh, in 1983. And um, over time, there was momentum to not only train, but then to compete. So uh, around 2001, um, women had just uh, succeeded uh, through the courts in uh, obtaining the, the right to fight, uh, to, to compete um, at the amateur level. Now, they had been fighting professionally, but at the amateur level in New York City. Uh, and so I thought that it would be good to get into the gym to sort of check out what was happening, investigate the racial politics, the class politics, and then with this new dimension of gender politics to see how um, gym communities were responding to uh, all of these different uh, configurations. Uh, so in, in January of 2001, 
Um, I just sort of cold went into the gym. Um, I had a friend who was actually a good friend of mine who worked for Ring Magazine who said, oh, check out Gleason's. Um, the owner's super cool. Um, he's, he's known for giving talks at, at universities. And, you know, I imagine that he'll be open to your interests. So I went and uh, checked out Gleason's and the owner, like my, my friend Eric Raskin had said, was very, very open to my ethnographic interests. And um, I had a great first visit and just uh, at that point became hooked and uh, kept going back. So you mentioned that you're you're a fan of uh, boxing, and you also trained for a time when you were doing your research, correct? I did. I did. Um, I, I should start out by saying that I was a, a terrible boxer. Um, <laughs> it's 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 only fair to people who spend their life with this craft um, to acknowledge that I did. Um, I didn't set out to do that when when I began this project. Um, I I had been a a college athlete and was pretty tired um, of competition and uh, really of rigorous training. So um, I think I'm I'm a sort of lazy athlete. And the last thing that I wanted to do was to try one of the most rigorous sports that there is. Um, But after I was there for maybe about six months or so, first, there's just a communal pressure. everybody's working out, you know, there are a lot of sports, sports writers, and there are a lot of um, people who are sort of milling about matchmakers and managers. So it's not totally unreasonable not to train. But for somebody like me, who was spending so much time there, it was a little awkward not to train. So the trainer said, you know, just get in there, try it, see what happens. Um, I sort of laughed it off in the beginning. And then the laughing off, was no longer a good avoidance strategy. Um, and, and I did feel like they had a point that it was important to learn the the bodily dimensions of the sport. And, and I, I do agree that you can only do that by humiliating yourself in trying. Um, so I, I, I did after six months, I, I started training, um, and, and I learned a phenomenal amount. And like I said, I was terrible. I, I did not enjoy it. I guess the sort of athlete in me sort of kicked in and just thought, well, you're going to do this. This is like what your task is. So just follow the rules. And I had a fabulous trainer, um, Harry Kite, who um, is a, is a pretty well-known trainer, both at Gleason's and also nationally. And um, he was, he was very, very patient with me. Um, And, and like I said, I learned a lot. Um, I certainly was in some of the best shape that I've ever been in. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just the workouts are, you know, two, two to three hours, they're grueling. Um, So there was something about that that was very, I guess, interesting to sort of watch my, my, my body change as I was sort of documenting the process and, and other athletes in the gym to sort of go through that with them and um, to have a new, new place to bond with them over complaining about how Mm -hmm. awful it was that I felt so incredibly exhausted. Um, but when I started, you know, there was this year where I was spending like between six and 14 hours in the gym or, or, um, about 70 hours a week at the height of the amateur fight season, the, the training actually became distracting. So Mm -hmm. I found that on days that I was training, um, that I could only focus on my own misery and that I wasn't totally attuned to what was going on in the gym. So I tried to strike a balance between 
you know, understanding what it was to listen to a trainer, to follow a trainer's instructions when your body rebels and is telling you other things like run, hide, duck, and the trainer saying move forward, punch, mm-hmm. when that just seems sort of seems like absolutely impossible. So there, when I was doing that, I was unable to conduct research on anything else yeah, yeah. but myself and my own suffering. So I, I had to sort of strike a balance. You know, Luc Vacant, um, who wrote Body and Soul, his his book is largely about his training. Uh, it's a it's a very good book. Um, but I, I also was sort of much more interested in the other uh, social relations and social practices of the gym. So didn't want to go overboard in, in, in my own training. But your training does come into the book in that uh, you write about, in particular in your chapters about trainers and boxers, uh, you write about the technique of the sport. You, you clearly gained a, uh, a different knowledge of the working of the sport than, than a fan has. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, that's right. And, and, in in that sense, I am extremely grateful to the gym community for pressuring me to do something that I never would have um, done without their urgings. Um, there is a way in, in which, you know, I think even, even as a college athlete, I, I thought I understood what it meant to be an athlete as if that's a sort of singular experience. And by training realized, wow, there are really specificities of the sport that I never would have been able to articulate had I not, not just worked on the heavy bag, but, you know, worked on mitts, um, and, and sparred, um, and felt the profound frustration of hearing someone tell you to do something, want to do that, want to execute it, um, you know, want to be able to do it and then just sort of have your brain cry when you can't, when your body doesn't (laughs) follow what this person who is working with you one-on-one, which also for me as a, as a runner was not the case. I I didn't have a tremendous amount of one-on-one time. So it was also a different relationship that, that built, but, um, absolutely. I think it was, it was crucial to at least possess, I think what I call in the book, an elementary understanding of what, uh, of what boxers go through because it's super scary to get hit. I didn't realize the extent to which everything that as a, as a, as a woman boxer that I had internalized either socially or, or otherwise, boxing goes against that, right? So you move forward when you're scared, you don't back up, you, um, have to suppress the adrenaline, um, that is, is, you know, giving you this sort of flight response, um, and your trainer's there to help you. But what you have to do is suppress what your body's telling you to do and, and listen to the trainer. And that for me was just a completely different experience because when a when a when a, a running coach tells you to run, you say, "Okay, I'll run." There's not a lot of of uh, resistance that your body gives you, but in in this in the sport of boxing, there's a tremendous amount that your body just sort of instinctively gives you in terms of resistance that takes a, a phenomenal amount of uh, intellectual thought and then also just sort of faith in 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 your coach to to overcome. Well, as you said, you went to the, when you started your research, you went to the gym cold, you just walked in and, uh, and that's how you start the book. You start the book, uh, the, the preface begins with this vivid picture 
uh, of Gleason's gym on on any given afternoon. And uh, and I admit in reading the preface that that surprised me that that picture that you give of the gym and and then what you do in the rest of the book is is talk about the different people that we see in that in that opening picture so to start out can you uh, can you tell us if if we were to go to Gleason's gym uh what would we see and and who would we see yeah so um the, the the picture that I tried to paint at the beginning was um, really to provoke the response that you had, which was that we have this sort of a, 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 a imagination or we have this image of uh, what a boxing gym is, right? And that's sort of a cranky old establishment with... It's taken from Rocky. Right, exactly. Yeah. Taken, taken from Rocky or taken, taken from um, Raging Bull or, you know, in my mind, it's in, always in black and white and, you know, people are wearing hoodies and sweating and people are smoking cigars and... Um, you know, there's people are curmudgeonly and, um, and, and when I walked in, I was, I was shocked, um, that there were children, um, that there were women, um, that there were uh, a significant number of men who had the habitus or comportment of upper class men. Um, it was just a far more diverse scene than, I had thought of and also that gets portrayed in watching fight night. So my experience primarily had been reading ring magazine and, and watching big pay-per-view fights and what was happening on the ground in the gym was just in- incredibly different. So, um, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the book is that depending on when you go to the gym, there's a different contingent of people. And so, uh, you know, what's called pro time, which tends to be in the morning and up to the afternoon, it tends to be amateurs and professionals, um, who are, you know, still largely men of color, um, as, as well as their trainers. But, um, in the afternoon there were kids who were like, you know, chasing each other and running around. And I thought this is sort of out of control what's happening. Um, how can you have six year olds here? Um, and then a, a, a huge group of women. Uh, and then this group called, uh, who's called the nouveau clientele, um, of white collar boxers who were there to, you know, pay phenomenal amounts of money to be trained by trainers. Um, so, you know, they tend to come more in the afternoon or, or after hours. Um, and, and this was incredibly exciting to me, um, to see that the gym community was, um, I don't know, happening in a way that I, I hadn't imagined. I, I also think that um, one of the things that surprised me about the gym was the extent to which I had imagined that everybody was going to be in the rings all the time. So Gleason's at that point had four um, operational uh boxing rings. Um, sometimes one would be used for wrestling. Um, and now I think one is used for MMA. But, um, at that time I just thought, well, everybody's going to be in the ring all the time and they're going to be queued up to get into the ring. And what I found is that people are, are sparring or fighting a very small percentage of the time and that there was a phenomenal amount of, um, socializing, um, supporting of each other. People were sleeping, people were playing dominoes, people were reading, people were watching movies. Um, and so the, 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 the space of the gym just sort of became far more, exciting than I had even imagined as a sort of, uh, boxing fan. And you talk about in the book that, uh, 
uh, well-known people have gone to the gym. So Hillary Swank trained uh, right. at the gym before uh, making Million Dollar Baby. Yeah. Uh, Ali has been there for photo sessions. You've met Mike Tyson when he visited Gleason's gym. And so why is it that what, what makes Gleason's uh, so well-known? That's a great question. Um, so Gleason's is the oldest operational boxing gym in the country. So it's the sort of longest uh, standing boxing gym. You know, there have been others that are probably as famous, but Gleason's um, has outlasted uh, its, uh, its, its, its rivals in, in, in longevity. Um, I think that it tends to be a place that um, has this connection to the sport um, in its golden age of boxing in New York City. So, you know, if if Muhammad Ali, who was there to do a, a photo shoot for, for Vanity Fair, you know, wants to pick a symbol of, of boxing at its height of, you know, masculine dominance or of uh, heavyweight nostalgia, Gleason's is one that is, is chosen. Um, you know, there are a lot of logos, uh, I've found that even among people who don't know about boxing, they've heard Gleason's gym. So it, it, I guess it, knowledge about Gleason spans a, a number of generations. And I think it's one of the last to be able to do that, maybe with the exception of, um, of, of, of Kronk. Um, but I think also the owner of Gleason's, as I talk about, has been really, really savvy in keeping Gleason's in in, in public view. So, you know, he is very, very proactive about getting photo shoots. Um, he, he wants Gleason's to not be a sleepy gym that where only exclusive fighters go. He wants everybody to feel like they can come in off the street. There are tour buses that come by with tourists from Germany who come in and go, Oh, and then get back on the bus and, you know, go wherever the next stop is in, in New York city. So he's, he's really been pretty active in, making it known that Gleason's is the, is the place that you can walk in off the street um, and that somebody's not going to be at the door policing your entrance. I mean, he ch- also charges $15 for a, a viewing fee. So if you come to Gleason's, you, in order to watch, you have to pay a certain amount of money, um, though if nobody's at the door, which is actually somewhat often you can sneak in. Um, but he he will charge that, and then he does charge for location fees. So a, a substantial amount of Gleason's income comes from Vanity Fair or Calvin Klein, um, Woody Allen's filmed there, um, NYPD back in the day filmed there. I think people within New York know that they can go there if they need a ring, if they need easy access, if they need to be able to pull a few people who, you know, look stereotypically like a, a heavyweight that, that they can get sort of everything on site. Um, and the, the owner, Bruce Silverglade, is incredibly savvy about negotiating that. Um, so, and, and people also from the gym, because there's so many location fees are, are, and, and photo shoots are totally unfazed by somebody walking in. Um, so Hillary Swank came in and she trained for months and, you know, the only thing that I really heard was, well, you know, sure clothes are kind of tight fitting and that's a little distracting <laughs> but you know nobody was talking about you know her oscars or um nominations or you know oh my god can you believe that hillary swank here i mean she just went unnoticed and i think that's also why people especially 
um, Hollywood actors and actresses seek out Gleason's is that you can completely fly under the radar. So um, Craig Bierko trained there for Cinderella Man. It actually took me and several people from the corner where I would hang out like several days to figure out who he was. It was like, oh, you know, was he in Sex in the City? Yeah, I think he was Sex in the City. Oh, whatever. Like, we'll figure it out tomorrow. Um, so nobody gets completely um, starstruck. And um, Ali was the exception. So I have to say that like part of my interest was appearing completely unfazed when anybody would come into the gym, you know, famous boxers, famous actresses. And with Ali, I just couldn't stop giggling. Um, and it was like, stay cool, Lucia, stay cool. And um, it was absolutely impossible. And he actually you know, shook my hand and said, glad to meet you. And I, I thought I, I was going to faint. Um, and that was like a complete out-of-body experience. Um, but Bruce also negotiated when Mike Tyson did, um, I think it was a hundred hours of community service at Gleason's. That was a deal that Bruce actively sought out. So when the case was, was sort of getting worked through the system, Bruce went to the DA and said, what about if he does community service at Gleason's gym? And it took him many months to work it out, but it was his idea. So he knew that having Mike Tyson in the gym was going to be great publicity for the gym um, and that it would work out for Mike Tyson because he'd avoid avoid jail time. So, you know, Bruce is incredibly creative in figuring out ways to keep Gleason's in the public eye um, and to keep Gleason's a place that people know that they can go, whether it's to do community service or to do a photo shoot. Um, and that just builds on itself, right? Because people hear about that. Oh, Mike Tyson was there. Um, and then, you know, Hillary Swank was there. And I think Hillary Swank went there because Jennifer Lopez had trained there and John Leguizamo had trained there. So it just builds off itself as, as a place where, where you can go and um, where you're not going to get a, a phenomenal amount of unwanted attention, which I think is crucial. Unless you're Muhammad Ali, which is like, that's just, <laughs> forget it. You can't even aspire to that. You're just too awesome. And then in turn, a number of the, the boxers who train there, they've been hired to be uh, extras and even have parts in, in some of the, the shows that have been filmed there. Right. Yeah, exactly. So there's ways in which, you know, that what I call the sort of post-industrial culture economy um, works to the advantage of men who are otherwise excluded from the, the labor market. So they work as extras or they work as sparring partners. Um, they often work as stunt doubles um, for, for, for people who are, are filming. So there's a way in which they get brought into the loop of either the film industry or um, still picture shoots um, and are able to, to make somewhat of an income by, by, by meeting people who are coming through the gym. And that gives access to social capital that otherwise is somewhat lacking. So the, the gym's ability to sort of circulate in the media world and the film world or within this culture industry really, really helps a, a number of the more amateur boxers. I think the professional boxers, you know, sort of think, well, this is, this is my job. I, I, 
I don't need to, to be a sparring partner. But the amateurs in particular who, you know, are often spending, like I say in the book, a, a lot of time there um, because there aren't other spaces for them to to, to, to pass time, um, and then get, yeah, get pulled into, to ways to earn an income and then also ways to show off their, their skills and, um, and their talent. Well, let's, I want to ask about these amateur boxers. You, you have a chapter devoted to the amateur boxers. You don't, uh, you don't talk so much in the book about professional boxers, but the amateur boxers, this is really a fascinating group because these are people who train for hours and hours each day and they're not fighting for money. So can you talk about talk about these men and uh, what brings them into amateur boxing? I found this group really um, interesting and um, over time just came to be re- just in awe of their determination um, and of their uh, regimentation, discipline. Um, and, and aspirations. So, you know, I thought everybody in the gym, when I was going into the gym, like I said, was, were professionals or were amateurs. And I imagine that the amateurs were, were just sort of a pipeline, like, like a lot of sports of people who wanted to go pro at some point. It never occurred to me that except for, you know, maybe the police athletic league or firefighters who have boxing incorporated into their occupational culture, but will never go pro. Um, beside that, I, I imagine that amateurs, you know, would have some, some, some goal of going pro at, at a point. And what I found was just the absolute opposite. So amateurs tend to be men between, you know, 18 or 27. Um, and the, the amateurs at Gleason's, um, tend to have sort of short educational histories, um, Many, if not most, have been incarcerated um, at at one time or another. State um, sixteen year olds could be incarcerated for um, adult crimes, and many went to state facilities um, as sixteen, as young as sixteen. Um, and they also have a difficult time accessing the labor market, partially because of their criminal records, but even without criminal records, because they've been in prison for periods of either what we would imagine to be educational training or um, job training or job gaining job experience, they have a hard time accessing uh, work, uh, work that and work that pays reasonably. So they come to the gym and train uh, incredibly diligently. They form very, very strong and loving bonds with their trainers but don't necessarily want to go pro. So what they're able to achieve from amateur boxing um, is success in their minds. Uh, so their 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 goals are are twofold, I think. One is to feel like they are participating in the working world, even though it's uncompensated, right? So even though they're not gaining uh, financially from the the sport to feel like they're workers and the gym really cultivates that they are workers, that they, that this is their job. And even though they are not receiving wages for their work, that, that they are in fact workers. And I think for men who, you know, the, the, the statistics in New York are 70% of, of black men are, are out of between the ages that we're, we're talking about are out of work. It's incredibly important to feel like um, they're part of the workforce. 
Um, and then the second part is to feel like they are spending time in meaningful ways. Um, and that is also not training time, right? So that they're bonding with other men, that they're receiving advice from men who are a generation or two above them, that they get mentoring about how to recover from traumas of forced incarceration or for, uh, for forced confinement, um, that they receive advice on how to be fathers, which a number of them, and that, especially in that time frame from 18 to 27, a number of them do become fathers. They get advice on how to do that. Um, and they get advice to just on how to sort of navigate their ways in the world. So the gym becomes this really special place in which they can understand themselves as workers, but then they can also understand themselves as fathers, as men, partners um, to their 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 loved ones, um, and that they also don't can can shed the stigma of being a quote unquote ex con or a criminal, um, and they can do that in a space without judgment. So where a number of the trainers have been also spent time in prison, they know about the transition from. Uh, maybe a pro-crime past to a, an anti-crime future and are, are able to guide them each step of the way. And as I write about in the book, there are often a number of bumps along the way that, um, that entail reincarceration. Um, and the trainers sort of see that as part of the process and are, are able to, to keep up their level of encouragement through, throughout that, that time span. So it's, it's a sort of amazing space that, allows people to create in the gym what they're not getting outside the gym. Um, now, I want to caution, as I do in the book, that, you know, there are limitations to that, right? There still aren't jobs outside, and they're still not getting paid. So uh, it's an inventive use of time, um, of bodies, of minds, um, but one that ultimately is pretty limited at the end of the day in changing any type of labor market dynamic or incarceration policy or crime control policy that we have in New York state. But do they gain uh, some status that they can carry outside the gym? Yeah. So that does happen. Uh, you know, strangely that has happened with the introduction of white collar clients, right? So this somewhat bizarre or stra- unfamiliar to me, political economy um, has emerged in the gym by which white collar clients pay significantly to be trained by gym trainers, which allows trainers to stay in the gym full-time in a way that historically has been impossible for gym trainers. So historically, boxing trainers worked during the day, trained people at night, worked night shifts to train people during the day, um, and weren't compensated enough that they could uh, forfeit employment outside the gym. Now, with the influx of white-collar clients, Trainers can actually afford to work with a certain percentage of um, of white collar clients uh, who pay with professionals who pay unevenly, right? Depending on whether they can get a fight, which in New York is increasingly difficult, and then with amateurs who don't pay and often cost them a lot of money. Um, and, and trainers will actually talk about balancing their stock portfolio. Um, so their, their athletes are, are talked about as stock. So, well, you know, you want a certain amount of, uh, white collar clients who are, um, you know, low risk, but low yield, um, professional fighters who are, uh, high risk, but potentially high yields. 
um, and then amateurs who are uh, high risk, low yield. Um, and what they end up doing is putting amateur boxers in the ring to spar with white collar clients and then sort of subtly over time assess it, assessing with their white collar clients whether the white collar clients might have work for amateurs, which often they do. So the, the political economy often works um, to the advantage of, of, of people involved in it. Um, and has given people who otherwise might not have access um, to to wage labor. So an example of this uh, is West Elm moved into um, downstairs from Gleason's when I was doing research there, and one of the managers was training as a white collar client, and we and the the trainer knew that another trainer's amateur boxer was, was really having a hard time making ends meet. And because West Elm was moving into the area also knew that West Elm would be hiring and asked this manager, if the manager would take a look at this amateur boxers application, uh, which the manager did, um, and was able to get the amateur boxer a job. Now that amateur boxer probably would have been disqualified based upon a criminal record, beforehand, but because this white collar client met the amateur, knew the amateur, and then had people to sort of informally recommend him, um, he was sort of over able to overcome that the stigma that, you know, operates really strongly in New York City um, for for criminal histories. So there is a way in which the meeting of these different people, people who you would not imagine typically meeting in, in a 14,000 square foot space, works to the advantage of, of the amateurs. And I recall one of the trainers saying this, that um, um, in referring to it, I, seemed, I remember that you write about this, that the trainer gestures to his boxers and then gestures to these white-collar boxers and talks about the gym as kind of a, a space of multiculturalism and, yeah. and opening up opportunities for for the boxers. Yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, so I had thought of it, oh, you know, as oh, well, the the access is to the to to the multicultural is the white collar yeah, yeah. boxer, and then the trainer corrects me and he says, no, um, you know, this is everybody's getting access here. Um, you know, the the amateurs are are getting access to this group of people who run New York City who they would not have access to otherwise. I mean, these are incredibly important people who are coming into the gym. They're showing up in their Rolls Royces um, with chauffeurs. Um, And it's not a segment of the population that this group of men would normally have access to. And the trainer is very, very shrewd pointing that out to me and saying, look, everybody's getting access here. You know, don't sort of make this about white people getting access. This is about everybody getting access and, and learning about other, uh, other people's lives and experiences. Now, as I talk about in one of the chapters, I think that there's a limitation to that because mm-hmm. a number of the motivations for white collar boxing is dependent or trades in, uh, you know, fascinations with black masculinity and, and, and trades and racial stereotypes. So it's not unproblematic, but when I would raise that, 
trainers would say, you're absolutely right. And this kid now has a job. And that's, you know, that, that really made me think, you know, it was very, very easy to sort of come in with this reading of sheer exploitation, um, rabid anti-black racism and, um, you know, the trainers and the, and the boxers would say, you know, that Lucia, this is a little bit more complicated. Can you, can you see the complexity of what's going on here? Um, and you know, we're as, as all the, the people who I worked with were just absolutely in, in incredible observers really helped me see the, the gym in a different light. Something you do discuss in, in talking about the conversations that the boxers and the trainers, so the gym regulars have as they're, they're sitting around in their idle time, is, uh, is in particular this, this misogynist view of women. So as women boxers were, were coming in, you, you write about this, that uh, the male boxers and trainers were, were not entirely welcoming of these, these women boxers. Can you talk about that? Sure. So this was probably the most difficult part of the book to write, um, partially because there's, you know, what I call this double discourse in the gym. Um, on the one hand, everybody is welcome and the gym is open to them. Women are, I think, over 300. Uh, there are over 300 women in the gym, so they, they comprise a significant proportion of the membership. Uh, and so their memberships are crucial to the ongoing survival of both the gym and then of trainers' livelihoods. So there's a way in which people say, sure, of course, you're a woman. I'll, I'm happy to work with you. And I'll work with you in the same way that I, I work with mailboxers. That breaks down when you spend a lot of time in the gym like I did. And you don't ask directly about, do you think women should be allowed to box? Right? You're going to get a very standard act. Uh, response when you ask that from most people in the gym. Yes, of course. Uh, but after spending a lot of time in the gym, I, I noticed that there's actually a fair amount of resistance to women's participation um, and that that manifests itself in a number of ways um, from, you know, sort of overtly sexist to, you know, that woman should not be wearing those clothes or she's just here to marry, to find a, a, a prize fighter to marry, or, you know, this is her sexual history to, you know, the more benign, but still highly gendered. Oh, she's fighting like a girl. She's not fighting like a man, um, which typically in the gym means that she's quote unquote head hunting. So she's not willing to take harder body shots. She's just taking the easier headshots, which I should point out is what is rewarded in amateur boxing. So the, the point system rewards shots landed, not like the professional system for difficulty of shots. So in a, in a certain way, if women are even headhunting at all, which I think is up for dispute, it wouldn't be counterintuitive to box that way based upon the scoring system. So there are ways in which women get held accountable for things that men wouldn't be or, or, or really penalized for things that men would not be held penalized for. And there's this odd sorting that sort of goes in the gym when somebody comes in and, and, and fights. And there's a tremendous amount of scrutiny on whether this woman is serious. Is she going to flirt? Is she going to, to, to socialize? Is she going to wear tight clothes? Um, what is she going to do? And, you know, what I say is that that's not the default position for a man who comes in the gym. 
So the default position for a man who comes in the gym is, okay, you know, let's see his skills. Whereas for a woman, she's already starting at the, 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 the threshold for her is much lower. I think it's lower, not higher. Or the threshold, the, the, the level of acceptance is um, a lot lower. So she has to do things that a, a male fighter won't have to do in order to get accepted. And, and in that process, that, that is, is often really desexualizing herself and defeminizing herself. So it's, it's, it's shedding her sexuality, it's shedding her femininity, and really requiring, um, you know, an, an asexual gender identity in order to make all the men feel comfortable with her being more manly than feminine. Lucia, we're almost out of time, and I want to uh, connect your research back to this larger point that you make about uh, what, what Gleason's gym reveals about um, post-industrial society. And, uh, and I was thinking about this this morning, so I was at the gym, and it's not a boxing <laughs> gym, so, so I was exercising this morning, whether you know, out of a desire just to be healthy or out of vanity or what have you. But <laughs> there's something, and you make this point in your book, that um, these boxers at the gym, so the amateur men, the women, and then these wealthy, wealthy white-collar boxers, they're looking for something else other than being healthy or being toned. And, yeah. and you make the point that there's something in post-industrial life that's compelling all of these people to train as boxers. Yeah, that's right. So I, I, I found this really fascinating. You know, the, the task, I think, of an ethnographer is to... Is to figure out, Paul Willis says that it's, it's our understandings of our participants' understandings, um, and to link that from our field site to larger social structural circumstances. And what I found that was interesting about this sort of post-industrial moment is that post-industrialism, the, the many facets of it, economic, social, political, and cultural, those, those facets were responsible for why people joined the gym um, and so white collar, uh, boxers, white collar men felt emasculated by the you know, tremendous amount of money that they were, uh, receiving from post-industrial economic changes, right? So unprecedented amounts of capital in, in post-industrial economies as we shifted from manufacturing to, you know, the financial sector, cor- corporate capitalism, uh, and turned their attention to their bodies, um, and turn their attention to their bodies in ways that they hadn't before, right? So everybody, people have exercised and worked out and played sports for, you know, since, you know, the historians will debate that, but for lo- a long time. So, you know, exercising or playing sports is not new. What's new is the type of sort of fanatical or obsessive attention to the body that, that, that people in the gym have. So white collar boxers would come in uh, and try to recover some lost masculinity that had somehow been um, shedded uh, in their accumulation of millions of dollars. Um, Amateur boxers were coming in to sort of reconstitute their dignity after, um, you know, the various humiliations of post-industrial changes, whether that's a a decimation of the labor market for positions for for men of color, uh, the the rise of incarceration and and our... um, New York State's 
uh, decision to incarcerate for longer periods of time than ever before for an increased number of, of, of infractions. And so they were able to come in and, and work on their bodies and see themselves as workers when otherwise they, they weren't able to. The same goes for trainers. And then I think women uh, found this space where they could also recover from different types of trauma um, and look to body culture to find more powerful selves in a a post-industrial moment where gender relations were changing. So what I found fascinating is that these were very, very divergent reasons that people were entering the gym, but that they all had to do with post-industrial restructurings. And then once in the gym, people weren't dictated by those post-industrial changes. They were in fact shaped by them in their decision to join a gym. But then within the gym, this community, these social relations, these social practices were inventive, you know, and reactive, but both at the same time, but the people were able to have some of their needs met through the sport of boxing, albeit in very different ways. I want to ask you about one last line that you have in your uh, in your conclusion, and I found it to be a, a telling line, also somewhat poignant, where you say that the the relationships and the experiences that people have in the gym are too intense to last. Yeah, so I think that um, that that you know that sentence was actually sentence was was difficult for me to write. Um, what I saw over time, um, and because I, I, I had the the benefit through you know my participants' generosity to to follow them for you know roughly a decade, that often what the gym community is being asked to do is too difficult to be sustainable on a long term basis. So you know the bonds between the amateurs and the and the trainers they become really loaded. And, you know, when a gym trainer has to not just be a gym trainer athletically or not just be a mentor, but be a father, and there's an army of amateur boxers who need that from him, the the burnout is just inevitable. And so I, I, I think I wanted to end on that note, sort of lest the gym be held up as the future of social service provision or our political future. I I did not want to leave the impression that this was a viable option. It it reflects people's ability to recover from suffering, to find new ways to make meaning, but it's not sustainable on a, on a long-term basis. Right. So I think I say that it's, you know, somewhat tritely that it's necessary, um, but not sufficient. And I think that I just was a little worried that the gym would be held up as the place for prisoner reentry, the place for job training, the place for, you know, women to sort out, um, recovery from sexual assault. And I, I think that that is not possible that, you know, as a, as a larger society, we need to be thinking about ways in which we're all committed to, those, um, those types of recoveries and actually of, of even more importantly, thinking about what's causing that suffering in the first place and, and work on that. Lucy, I'll ask you what you're working on now then. Um, that's a good question. Um, I'm interested in, you know, one of the, there's this, uh, myth that boxing is on the decline, um, worldwide and it's actually not, 
Um, and through collaboration with a filmmaker in L.A., I've become interested in boxing's sort of move to not only the West, Case, the West Coast, but also um, to China. So at international markets, there's a, a big push to, to create um, a, a boxing fan base that's based out of Macau. So I'm, I'm starting to look at more global dimensions of the sport um, and ways in which different markets are getting cultivated um, and might potentially save the sport in the face of, um, you know, the decline of grassroots boxing in New York City and of the rise of MMA, which, you know, it has been much more successful in cultivating and rewarding fans than, unfortunately, um, boxing has. You've been listening to an interview with Lucia Trimber about her book, Come Out Swinging, The Changing World of Boxing in Gleason's Gym, published by Princeton University Press in 2013. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from religion to Russian studies. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter at New Books Sports or friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash newbooksandsports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week.